So you're going to answer all of our questions today. <coughs> I'm going to do as much talking as I can so I don't get any questions. It's going to leave you with all the questions. I always have questions. The more I learn, the more I question. Because you're really learning. I guess. Either that or just really slow. Really? I would appreciate that. Thank you. Please start. The wedding march that they play in a lot of weddings is for the middle school. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a pencil? I should have. No, I don't. I have a vision. That's good. Wait, Doc. Please, please start. I thought we had. You started the party. I feel like I'm I'm back in school with an unruly group of freshmen. Let's start. There's a good bit to do today. Any prayer requests? I know we've got a number. Um, I just want to, uh, a prayer of thanksgiving. We've prayed in the past year or so for Sherry, uh, and she had a PET scan, and it was all clear Here. a couple oh, weeks wow. ago. So thank you all oh, for your prayers. Wow. That's wonderful. I have to say, in light of what Bev just said and something Gita said to me, um, I, I want to thank everybody um, who's asked for prayers um, because not always, I mean sometimes our, our fears and our worries are great enough to move us, but I think sometimes we feel a little bit awkward asking for prayers for others. <coughs> sometimes I think it takes real humility and courage to ask, so but you all have been doing that and I've said this before. Uh, <coughs> I'm saying this now in Thanksgiving for the gift, I believe it's been for all of us, to hear each other's prayers because we know a lot more is going on in each of our lives than we often see. To offer a prayer is like opening a window into your own life. So um, there's another Thanksgiving. The fact that you even asked, you know, is I think it's been a blessing for all of us. So I think a Thanksgiving for everybody. Any, any other prayers? I, I, I do, um, and I don't know if it's appropriate or not, but um, 
my friend Janie, whom we prayed for before, who has Lou Gehrig's disease, passed away yesterday. Mm. And it was actually, it's a blessing. blessing. Yeah. It's absolutely a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. It had gotten very bad, and so yeah. it was it was a relief, yeah. really, for her and her husband and, and those of us who care about her. I want to say this, God, I'm just, this is amazing, just um, none of this plan. I'd like to just remind everybody that God, it's something that's so hard for us. Every death is supposed to be a blessing. You know, we don't look at it that way. The relief from torment is, in some sense, a blessing. It shouldn't take us that to, to feel that a blessing is taking place when somebody dies. If you look at the misery of this awful world and the, the awful things that go on in it and the struggle that I'm assuming most of us have, I'm hoping that just for myself here, that our struggle with sins, trying to put our sins away, the um, movement from here into the next life, that's, I mean, Boethius was there, we've been saying that. Some of the poems have the poets, George Herbert's poem on death, and talked about the gloom of death and the joy that we're supposed to feel, you know, when that moment comes. So, I know it had to be a special blessing when you see somebody finally receive some relief from their pain, because it's awful to watch. But I think we should all remember too that some somehow we we have to do that. Whenever our kids go through something, or I know a dear friend who's going to a funeral or has experienced death, I will always express a grief because I feel it, it's a sorrow when you lose somebody, and always say, make place somewhere in this for a joy. We have to do that, or we're not living our faith in some way. Um, I know that sounds sentimental, and, but <clears throat> I believe it. Any, other, any prayers? It's also Sa sorry, Debbie, what's your name again? Janie. Janie? Janie. Janie. It's also a blessing for the caregivers, too. Mm. Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I've seen that too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My sister-in-law Carol seems to have taken a turn for the worse this week. So yeah. Don't know how long she has. <clears throat> what you found one? Oh, do I? By your book. Oh dear, yeah. <clears throat> Sorry, my mind's going. And you all know that. And Bob's friend. Yeah, Rod. Mm -hmm. In the name of the Father, Son. Sorry, I've got it right here in front of me. I'm just not going to forget. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, I want to make this a special prayer this morning. Excuse me for a second. The, those of you who are in Mass this morning know that um, the first reading was from Paul's letter to the Corinthian, Corinthians, I think. Yeah. And the Gospel was that um, Gospel in which Jesus says to the disciples, um, lay not your treasures up on earth, um, for where your heart is, there you'll be. If our focus is too much on this world or gaining wealth, if material possessions become more important than heaven, um, it affects us um, 
in, in numerous places, Christ, the Bible says, we're supposed to base our judgments on eternity. We have to keep our focus there and not give in to the inclination to make judgments according to everything here. We, we know that that's our ultimate reference point. So, And Christ is speaking to that when he says, um, don't, don't store up treasures here. Father was underscoring in his homily um, when he said that Christ is asking us to shift our attention um, to heaven. <clears throat> I want to read the end of it, um, and then I want to go to something that Paul says and <coughs> use that as the basis of our prayer this morning. Christ says at the end of that gospel, the lamp of the body is the eye. <laughs> Interesting, we've been talking about how much comes through our eyes. If your eye is sound, your whole body will be filled with light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be in darkness. And if the light in you is darkness, how great will the darkness be? If that's true, what will dispel the darkness? If the light's not there, what will dispel that darkness? I mean, that's just a <coughs> frightening thought for me. Um, our mind should be on God. Um, those of you there remember, it's, I'm not going to read the whole letter, but what Paul is doing is saying that um, he has nothing to boast about. Right, the, t the temptation of the world is to boast. I won. We won. We got this money. Here was our success. Um, um, we, we boast of the things in order, this is what our children did. You know, this is what we did. So the tendency in our pride is to elevate ourselves by our accomplishments, our wealth, children. You know. Paul is saying he has nothing to boast God. How can anybody not love that man? He says, um, since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. To my shame I say that we were too weak. And he goes on to boast for his weakness. God bless him. I want to recall that because I'd like that to be the focus of at least the prayer I'm offering this morning. Um, <clears throat> are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they children of Israel? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? He goes on and on. He, he starts account, recounting. He was beaten several times with um, almost 45 times, almost 40 whips. Um, imagine Christ's scourge. Christ, Christ is God. Paul's been whipped five times. Stoned three times. I was shipwrecked, passed a night in the day, robbed, beaten, dangers from rivers, from robbers, um, from my own race, from the Gentiles, from the cities, the wilderness, at sea, through hunger, thirst, frequent fasting, through cold and exposure. And apart from these things, there's the daily pressure upon, daily, daily pressure upon me for all the churches. Who is weak? And I'm not weak. Who is led to sin, and I'm not indignant? What can he be saying except um, he's done all this thing for Christ, and he's boasting of his weakness? What he's doing, at least as, in part as I hear him, is saying, um, if we don't boast for our weaknesses, we're in trouble, because so long as we keep making our focus our accomplishments, we don't need him. 
The, the extraordinary thing about this is not only is he boasting for his, his weaknesses, it's what Paul's saying is a reminder there's no way, none in the world, that we can come close to what Christ did. We should never be ashamed. I mean, we have to be ashamed of our sins. You know, we have to be ashamed of our sins. But we can never despair. Whatever our shame is, we have to take a joy while we're sinning. I don't, people are going to get me right on this. I'm listening to my words and thinking. Are you all following? We are not to despair. There's no way. If Paul underwent all this for Christ and still boasts of his weakness, he's saying no matter how much we do, we can never get close to what he did. He's God. So one, I've said this before. There are two wounds that we all carry, I believe. One of them is the wound of our fall. Concupiscence, we're, we're wounded. The other is that we cannot, or it's, it's impossible for us to love the way Christ did. He was God. The atonement was for us. We could never have made reparations to God. So we're left with a wound every day. And Paul's words here are a reminder. We, are, we should do everything we can to offer ourselves, to sacrifice ourselves, give ourselves up. Even if we fail, no matter how much we fail, who is weak and I'm not weak? He endured all those things. Who of us can say we've endured that? With all the sufferings any of us have endured, have any of us gone, got close to what he's describing? And he's doing it in love of Christ. Who's weak and I'm not weak after doing this? I, I think about men who accomplish, or women today, <coughs> great fortunes, success, athletes who can say, look how great I am. And Paul's going, who's weak after enduring? How many people today, would it, how many athletes who get millions of dollars a year would willingly endure these things? Or successful businessmen? Who's weak and I'm not weak? Who is led to sin? I'm not indignant. He's carrying an awareness that no matter all that he suffers, he will never be able to do enough. He is boasting on his weakness because he knows it's only in doing that that he can keep turning to Christ. Sorry. So here's my prayer. Um, strengthen all of us in a spirit of humility. Um, Try to stay with Paul as much as we can. Um, no matter what our sins are, no matter how bad they are, how constant, how much we fail in our struggles, how weak we are, help us to know it's through that weakness that we turn to you. Strengthen us. Um, let you be the strength in our weakness. Not be afraid of it, to be with you. Um, I ask a special prayer for Lori Williams. Surround her with your protection. Um, watch over her um, in this trial. Um, receive Janie into your kingdom. Um, watch away her sins. There's a time in purgatory. She's got to be glad. We all are supposed to be. Um, but at the time she's there, be a joy. Um, and let our prayers help her. Um, be with Rod um, in his surgery today. Um, I ask for a special prayer for Bob um, because he grieves so much. Let his heart quiet in, in hope. Increase the spirit of hope in him. And be with Carol. Um, um, if things worsen, 
and let the um, let the worsening increase her faith. And as things get darker, let her find a light in you. Um, let that be so for all of us. Um, our lives with you are paradoxes. We are supposed to hold opposites together. And help us all to do that. Um, and I personally offer um, a prayer of thanksgiving for the work that we have done together. Um, um, let us all take a strength in what we're learning from these people and bring it to our world, uh, particularly all that we do with each other in close relationships. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Did you all, let's see, a couple of things. You all got my email, did you? Did you read it? <laughs> you all got my email. If you've got questions about it, if, if you could hold them, because I'm going to get to something, and if you've got questions, I'd be glad, really genuinely glad to hear them then, but hold off till we get to Boethius and Chaucer. For those of you who got questions about reading, um, very sketchily, God, um, this is fairly firm, but just know that that I may sneak a couple Shakespeare's in next year. <laughs> well, I just this Mary's question Monday left me. You, I mean, you can tell from my letter. Um, some of you said it was long. Um, Everybody says it's long. <laughs> you, still got, what, you still got the scarlet just letter what I, too. Just, yeah, no, just, just what I need. Uh, Here's what we're doing. We're gonna we're gonna pick up with Chaucer first thing when we get back. When, uh, the first thing I'm gonna do when we get back is review tonight's tale, and it's the fact that it's the first tale and why that's so. And we will read a, a handful, maybe five or six, and the um, the ones that we'll read are included on the Chaucer study guide. Do you all have a study guide? The Chaucer. Does anybody not have a study guide? If you don't, I've asked for. A donation too because it's a it's a more serious I think they're behind Doc. Does anybody need the study guide? I don't know if need to. We the study oh wow. I don't think we have the study guide. You're a much better judge of that than Here, can I have your attention? Let's get um, we're gonna start with I'm just gonna do a review of theses. Then we're gonna do the Miller's tale. And then on the, the Priors' tale, the Wife of Bath, and a number of others. They're on the uh, they're on the study guide, so you'll see. Mike, I would just encourage you to read Chaucer over the summer because he's just a little light to read. He's just a joy to read, and and if, when you do read him, read some passages aloud. You know the way I did because you'll hear a comic spirit from the rhyming and the lines. Um, we'll do Chaucer. We're going to do. As soon as Chaucer's over, we're going to do Anthony and Cleopatra. That's what we've been scheduled to do. Um, and I thought about doing Merchant of Venice again because there are people who have not done it um, with us and because it speaks so directly to our regime, what, what the nature of our regime. And after Mary's question, I actually thought about doing um, Measure for Measure, Shakespeare's Measure for Measure. It's what's called a dark comedy. It's a dark comedy. And it deals precisely with the issue that I raised in that note to you all in the email. The spiritual pride 
and the danger it presents to us. He, he's tackling it head on. It's in a beautiful, beautiful way. So I'm, I, I might do that. Then we're going to go, I think we're going to do the Scarlet Letter and T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral, which is Eliot's treatment of Thomas Beckett's murder. So Eliot's going to take us back to Chaucer and, and the, the, the pilgrimage to Beckett's shrine. And then we'll end with Brothers Kermaz. I think that's our, that's our reading list. Um, and we'll stop unless, unless you guys are insane enough to want to come up with something else and we may continue. It's up, we'll see what you guys see then, say then. I thought we were going to do the general theory of relativity before we go. <laughs> <laughs> Sometime next year, Fred's going to give a talk <laughs> on, on the affinities between Einstein's theory of relativity and Dante's treatment of, I don't know, the three circles or something, I don't, something. I don't think so. Looking forward to it. I think that's all the business. If those of you, I, those of you who don't have study guides who are taking them, would you be sure to make a donation be, uh, because this is a, it's a substantial guide. Um, I think that's it, yeah? Let's, let's start. Can you take out the record of the Dutch and we'll finish it? This is the, um, the Falk laws that were passed in Germany forced um, um, Catholics to leave England. Um, church properties were confiscated and, and the, those in holy orders had to leave. And this one particular group of five nuns left for America, believing that they would go to a land that was, would allow them to practice their faith and freedom. And you know, <coughs> they die in this shipwreck. The wreck of the Dutchland can have two meanings. It, it, in one sense, it refers to the, the destruction of the ship and the loss of lives. It can also refer indirectly to Germany. Deutschland, Deutschland means German land. The fact that, that um, a, a, a nation would do that is a sign of, a, obviously, a spiritual decline, spiritual corruption. Um, America was founded on the basis of, of um, a disestablishment of religion that, that the state could not force, could not establish a state religion. doesn't mean we can't pray in school. It doesn't mean all sorts of other things. What it meant was the state cannot establish, force people to practice a certain faith, which is what happened, what was true in England. Um, Remember, he, he had just recently converted to Catholicism and was um, just a little ways off from um, wanting to become a priest. So he wrote this poem 
a little bit early in his career, he's already burned a number of poems when he made the conversion because he thought they would be a distraction. He's, he's um, converted. It's been a, t a time of a real ordeal. He had to leave the faith that he was raised in, the Anglican Church. Most of the men in the Oxford movement, which is one of the most important movements in the modern world, truly, I'm not exaggerating that, it's a, it represents a crisis in England because England, in some ways, had been Protestant for centuries, but at that point, they're almost more Protestant in name. They've lost their faith in lots of ways that it, the church had become so liberal. So all of these men associated with, or a large number of men associated with Oxford, wanted to see the church reform and began that movement, the Tractarian movement, the Oxford movement. And I, you know from what I've said before that a number of when they began to look at the issues realized that the real issue was authority, that when the English church broke off from Rome, it undermined that authority, became schismatic, um, and cut itself off from the unity of the church. And if they could do it, who couldn't? It absolutely struck at the unity of the church. So many of them converted. John Henry Newman was the major figure, and all the works that he wrote after that speak to that problem. Newman, or um, Hopkins converted 20 years later, and at this point, he's had a number of spiritual retreats. He's received the host. He's experienced a crisis, and it, it, it is shifted his landscape, his spiritual landscape, was disrupted. Um, so he's speaking about his own personal crisis, the, remember part one is about that, and then in part two he takes up the, the voyage of the ship and the, the death of these five men. I've described the structure of the poem as a fugue. A fugue is a piece of music that consists of a voice which announces a theme, whatever that theme is, and then a second voice which picks up and elaborates that theme, and then usually some kind of resolution. And I want you to hold on to that because Hopkins would have been aware of that, without a doubt. He loved music and new musical forms. He couldn't have done what he did in poetry without that kind of knowledge. So the first, in the first section, he speaks to his own personal crisis. We've read it. My hope is that you guys will pick this up. And In fact, I'd like to ask all of you, just to ask you, pick this up this summer and read it a couple of times, no matter how confusing. Just let the words roll on you. <coughs> um, um, struggle with what meanings you can. It will get clearer and clearer every time you go back to it. So, opening part, his personal struggle. The second part, his narrative, describing what happened with the nuns. And remember, this is not a narrative. This is an ode. An ode is a lyric poem made for a public occasion. So it's the irregular line lengths are typical of an ode. It, it's more formal. It's, it's um, modulations in sentiments, short lines, long lines, are appropriate for the complexity that, that it's trying to express. Okay. So part, <clears throat> part two, this is the point where he, the, the ship has hit the shoal, the storm is tearing it apart, Remember, I, um, I think I read that line where it describes the sailor attaching a rope to himself to protect himself because he was, he was trying to be heroic. He put a rope to himself knowing he was putting himself in danger and thinking he could help somebody. But the winds take him and the, he's being lashed around, knocked about, 
um, by the winds and the force of the waves. And Hopkins, the word that he uses to describe that is dandle. Dandle. It's what a father does with a child on his knee. You dandle her. Because remember, for Hopkins, the, the, depth, the depth of our mystery as Christians is paradox. The most grotesque act in the world was putting God on a cross and killing him. It was the most beautiful thing that we will ever know. No act will ever surpass that. At the heart of our faith are paradoxes. We're asked to see, merciful God, here's this cruel thing happening, how can he let it happen? Hopkins sees um, a father in it, a tender father. How many of us, I mean, it goes to, you know, when somebody dies, and it's a blessing. How many of us feel a relief? that a, a good thing is happening in that moment. Do we have eyes to see it, a heart to feel it? Poets have been taking us there again and again. So um, he's at that point now where he's, where he's gonna describe what the sisters do, and in a moment you'll see we're gonna come to that point where the two voices meet, and I believe that's the point of resolution. And to me, it's one of the most extraordinary moments in all of poetry, okay? We'll see in a second. <clears throat> 20. She was the first of a five and came of a coif sisterhood. O Deutschland, double a desperate name. O worldwide of its good, but Gertrude, Lily, and Luther are two of a town. They both came from the same, we've talked about this forever. Two kids from the same family can turn out so differently, so differently. Two from the same town, Christ Lily and Beast of the Waste Wood. She was gentle and gracious. He was violent, arrogant, um, schismatic. From life's dawn, it is drawn down. Abel is Cain's brother, and breasts they have sucked the same. Two brothers, right, from the same? They suck the same. The world separates in that moment. Loathe for a love, men knew in them, banned by the land of their birth. Rhine refused them. Thames would ruin them. This is the irony because England, you know itself, had left the faith. So, in the, it's, I mean, Hopkins knows what's going on. The five nuns are setting off west on a ship to go around England, the North, and, the North, and they enter the North Sea. But the winds of the storm drive them towards the Thames. So it's Germany and England, in some way, coalescing, coming together here in this moment of destruction. So there are ironies everywhere. Rhine refused them, Thames would ruin them, surf, snow, river, and earth gnashed. But thou art above, thou orient of light, the unchanceling, poising palms were weighing the worth. Thou martyr, master, in thy sight storm flakes were scroll leaf flowers, lily showers, sweet heaven was astrewing them. Let me mention this, and I'm going to try to just go through this because I don't want, I really want to let the poem have its way. One of the difficulties of reading Hopkins is he keeps using these compounds. He will put several words together. That's a technique from old English poetry. It's one of the, his innovations. He's going back and adapting it to English. But here's, here's the point I want to make. He uses these compounds because he's getting us to see that lots of things are coalescing in a moment. Lots of, lots of poets would take six lines to describe something. In place of those six lines, we're getting a compound, so our mind has to work to see what's concentrated in that moment. Because what's happening in that moment is bringing several things related together. 
So he's asking the mind to work, to, to see there's all these things constantly joining. So, so could you just tell us in that one line what you, what you see? Which? Uh, the storm flakes were scrolled, leaf flowers, lilies, showers, sweet heaven was strewing them. Just use that as an example and, and describe for us what you just said. Just, I mean, take the, well, martyr master is God, in thy sight storm flakes were scroll leaved flowers. Just that for me. Flakes is a word we associate with snow, usually calm. I mean, we, we, it, it's a pastoral image, snowflakes falling. We can get very romantic about it. it except, and like Dandel, snowflakes here are uh, destroying, destructive. Their power for hurting is real. Were scroll leaf flowers. So storm flakes are described in terms of flowers, but the image of scroll leaved flowers reminds me of leaves, pages of the Bible. I mean, it can be leaves in a flower, but I think the metaphor, my, my sense is for Hopkins, that leaves would recall, because that was a typical way of describing a page then, you know, the leaves of the Bible. He uses it in other poems. So all of these, like lily showers, it, it, he uses these images from a pastoral world, a world of beauty and peace and comfort, because that, that's an aspect of what's going on. It, tr try to remember, God is master of all of this. He, he, Job, he, he was the one who created it all. So there's no storm that takes place that, do, that doesn't have his permission. I mean, I don't know how to put it. He, he, he's in charge. He's in but he's allowed these things here, this great power in nature, so great that it can be destructive. But God's behind it. So Hopkins is asking us to put two things together, the overwhelming force of nature together with its beauty, its gentleness relative to God. Um, storm flakes were scroll leaf flowers, lily showers, sweet heaven was a strew in them. There it is. You know, it's saying explicitly. We would look at it in terror and run. He's looking through, in it to see something more in it that's beyond, that's a beauty. It, it's a little bit like looking at the crucifixion, that this horrible, horrible thing is taking place. And we're, we, we, can't, we are not supposed, somebody who's not a Christian will look at that as the most grotesque thing in the world. It was. Um, but we're asked to see in it the greatest beauty that we'll ever know, that God, God showing that his love is that great, that he's willing, God, God is willing to allow that to happen to him. And he's asking us to do it. And I was thinking of the Mass this morning when we were celebrating Mass and Father was <coughs> blessing us. I was thinking about Protestant ministers inspiring with words. When the priest is, re I wish I had the words, when it's that you are the font of holiness and you're starting to bless the sacraments, we're going to take that into us. We talked about it, that's gone. We're not thinking about him. We are not in our heads. We are about to receive him physically into us. We, we, we are asked to immediately experience the sacrifice and join it. So Hopkins is constantly pulling these metaphors, to dealing with destruction and beauty. Mm -hmm. to, to, and doesn't, he, and yeah. doesn't he use or alliteration, or is this just in his 
uh, one sentence, the unchanceling, poising palms were weighing the work. What about them, Linda? What's your alliteration? Yeah, it's there. You're, Does you're, he use it a lot? Oh, yeah. I, you, you, you must not have been here, but when I first started this, <coughs> before I started reading the wreck, I did that little section on alliterative verse, because mm -hmm. you're right on. Remember, Hopkins is, is adapting old English poetry, which is based on heavy, four alliterative stresses in two halves. First half, second half, boom, 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 boom. Alliteration and assonance, which means internal consonant, or I mean uh, vowel rhyming, what he calls chiming. I, I don't think there's a poet, maybe except Shakespeare, who has the ear for music that Hopkins does. The alliteration is not an accident. He's trying to help us, to, to help language jump out at us, to hit us, to make us think, and to feel the, 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 the stresses of things in the world, to capture the stresses. We, we want, in, a, in modern America, we want to be stress-free. It was a fundamental belief in Hopkins that if you were spiritual law, you'd be feeling stresses all the time because God is stressing you into something. You know, he's, we're supposed to be taking to the world. So this thing about stressing and alliteration and is, is, is a, a, a conscious part of his art. You can't hear his lines without feeling it. And, and you know that he couldn't have written them without being conscious of what he was doing hearing because he was trying to achieve a musical effect. Five, the finding and sake and cipher of suffering Christ. Mark, the mark is of man's make. There's a, there's those four literally. And the word of it sacrificed, but he scores it in scarlet himself on his own bespoken. Before time taken, dears prized and priced, stigma, signal, sank foil, token, for lettering of the lamb's fleece, readying of the rose plague. <coughs> Joy Faldity, Father Francis, drawn to the life that died. He's recalling the stigmata in St. Francis. Remember that he actually had them in the last years of his life. For the gnarls of the nails in the niche of the lance, his lovescape crucified, and seal of his seraph arrival, and these thy daughters in five lived and leaved favor and pride, are sisterly sealed in wild waters to bathe in his fall gold mercies, to breathe in his all-fire glances. Notice those compounds, the way he constantly joins, he, he can join five adjectives and connect them to a noun. Because it's a way of saying, we can't just make things in terms, I'm sorry Karen's not here, because Faulkner drove her nuts. <coughs> Why did he write in English? I mean, the obvious answer to that, because very often English is trying to capture something that doesn't lend itself to Conventional language that good poets have to stretch. Dante did it in the Paradiso, remember. He's doing it here. He's got these compounds because he's forcing, it to, he's forcing us to see there's a lot going on in one instant. There's a compression, things joining to produce that thing. It's one of the great innovations he, he made. Away in the lovable west on a pastoral forehead of Wales, I was under a roof here, I was at rest. And they, the prey of the ghost. Remember now, we've already had that stanza where he said, oh, sensitive, are you? You've got the sensitive soul, are you? Don't, don't, I'll get it. I just want you to hear the line. Um, 
I won't be able to get it. Alright. Swearies. Um, uh, I touched in the bower of bone, are you? Turn for any exquisite smart. Oh, you're feeling so. You know the way sometimes, oh God, when um, we're suffering for somebody else, and there's part of us doing it for ourselves. Oh, how sensitive I am. Look how, what a sensitive soul I am. You know, even then we can't escape our pride. So he's been scathing himself. He did it then, and he's returning to that now because he's aware. They're dying. He's here in this room. So the, the, now watch, because like a fugue, these two voices are beginning to come together. His own personal suffering within. <coughs> Away in the lovable west, on a pastoral forehead of Wales, I was under a roof here, I was at rest. And they, the prey of the gales, she to the black about air, to the breaker, the thickly falling flakes, to the throng that catches and quails, is calling, O oh Christ, Christ, come quickly. Across to her she calls Christ to her, christens her wild worst best. The majesty, what did she mean? Because that was one of the reports on the were recovered in the reporting that from the people who survived the wreck that these were actually things that took place. She spoke these words. What did she mean? Breathe, arch and original breath. <laughs> Breathe. What's the arch and original breath? Huh? The Creation. word? Creation. The word? The word. <coughs> The arch and original breath of the speaking that brought every the original breath of the word, Christ speaking, bringing creation into being. Yeah. Breath, arch and original breath, breath, breathe, arch and original breath. Is it love in her of the being as her lover had been? Breath, body of lovely. Sorry, breathe. Sorry, breathe, body of lovely death. They were else-minded then altogether. The men woke thee with a we are perishing in the weather of Gennesaret. Or is it that she cried for the crown then, the keener to come at the comfort for feeling the combating keen? The men are going, we're dying. These are sailors. They're trying to do everything to get going, but they're also expressing their terror. We're dying. She's going, Christ, come quickly, come quickly. So there's a contrast between For how to the heart's cheering the down dugged ground hugged gray hovers off the jade blue heavens appearing of pied and peeled may, blue beating and hoary glow height or night still higher, with belled fire and the moth soft milky way. What by your measure is the heaven of desire, the treasure never eyesight got, nor was ever guessed what for the hearing as much as we seek him, he's still always beyond us. No, but it was not these. So it, it wasn't idealizing something or what we can do at a moment of crisis when we call on Christ. It was none of these things. No, but it was not these. The jading and jar of the cart times tasking. It is fathers that asking for ease of the sodden with its sorrowing heart. Not danger, electrical horror. So it's not time tasking. You know that we go through our days laboring. Um, and complaining, why after I do this, why after I put up with this. Um, <laughs> no, we're not going to babysit this weekend, or um, I've already got too much to do. Or, you know, I mean, times can't, 
Time wears us out every day. Is she looking for relief from these? No, it's not that. Is it the danger, the electoral core? No, it's not that. Then what is it? What is it she means? What does she mean when she cries out? Not danger, electrical horror. Then further it finds the appealing of the passion is tender in prayer apart. Other, I gather, in measure her mind's burden in windy burly and beat of the dragon seas. Something else was going on. It was not all these other things when she cried out. So he's struggling to find out at, at the <coughs> moment of perishing what went on when she cried out. What did those words mean? <coughs> but how shall I make me room there? Reach me a fancy come faster. Something's coming. Strike you the side of it. Look at the loom there. Thing that she, there then the master. Ipsy, the only one, Christ King head. You can feel the line slow down. He was to cure the extremity where he had cast her. Do deal, lord it with living and dead. Let him ride her pride in his triumph. Christ would never let this happen unless there were a glory to come out of it. Do we see it? Can we find it? Let him ride her pride in his triumph, dispatch and have done with his doom there. So what was she crying out for? What happened in that moment? It's ipsy. It's not, I will get my reward. Finally just, it's Christ there in the moment. That's enough. It's him, Ipsy himself, the good in itself, not for something else, not yet, not something, it's him there. He's there at that moment. I think that's the resolution for the two voices. It's his personal struggle coming to its head. It's an answer to what he hears the nun calling out for when she knows she's going to die. Uh, there was a heart right, there was a single eye. Read the unspeak, unshapable shock night, and knew the who and the why, wording it how, but by him that present and past, heaven and earth are word of, worded by, the Simon Peter of a soul, to the blast tarpian fast, but a blown beacon of hope. Jesu, heart's light, Jesu made sun, what was the feast followed the night? Thou hadst glory of this nun, Feast of the one woman without stain, for so conceive, so to conceive thee is done. But here was heart's throw, birth of a brain, word that heard and kept thee and uttered thee outright. It's like in some ways she's with Mary in the way that Mary so completely gave herself. Though she has thee for the pains, for the patience, but pity of the rest of them. Did any of them enter into that moment the way she did? But pity of the rest of them. There, there was an occasion. There was an occasion. Everybody involved <coughs> knew the good possibility that they would not survive that moment. They were going to die. How many of them facing death in that moment really gave them so the, the way Mary did, the way Christ did, the way he sees the nun doing? Patience, but pity of the rest of them. Heart go and bleed at a bitter vein for the comfortless and confessed of them. No, not uncomforted, lovely, felicitous providence, finger of a tender of, oh, of a feathery delicacy, the breast of the maiden could obey so, be a bell to ring of it, and startle the poor sheep back. Sometimes we need to be reminded of disasters to put a fearness enough to get back. So 
there can still be a good people know. Um, of a feathery delicacy, the breast of the maiden could so be a bell to ring of it and startle the poor sheep back. Is the shipwreck then a harvest? Does tempest carry the grain for thee? Is this tempest storm carrying grain? I mean, hear those paradoxes constantly. I admire thee, master of the tides, of your flood, of the year's fall, the recurb and the recovery of the gulf sides, the girth of it, and the wharf of it, and the wall, staunching, quenching ocean of emotion, emotionable mind, ground of being and granite of it, past all grasp, God, thrown behind death with a sovereignty that heeds but hides, bodes but abides. With a mercy that outrides the all of the water, an ark for the listener, for the linger, with a love glides lower than death and the dark, a vein for the visiting of the past prayer, pent in prison, the last breath, penitent spirits, the uttermost mark, our passion plunged, giant risen, the Christ of the Father, compassionate, fetched in the storm of his stripes. Now burn, newborn to the world, double-natured name, the heaven-flung, heart-fleshed, maiden-furled, miracle in Mary of flame. Bid numbered he and thee of the thunder throne, not a doomsday dazzle in his coming, nor dark as he came, kind but royally reclaiming his own. The release shower let flash to the shire, not a lightning of fire, hard hurled. Dame at our door, drown there in the North Sea, between Germany and England. And both have turned away. Dame at our door, drowned and among our shoals, remember us in the roads, the heaven haven of the reward. Our king back, O oh, upon English souls, let him Easter in us be a day spring to the dimness of us, be a crimson cresseted east. More brightening her rare dear Britain as his reign rolls, pride, rose, prince, hero, as high priest, our hearts, charities, hearts, fire, our thoughts, chivalries, throngs, Lord. He ends with a prayer that England return to the faith. That something like this, these disasters, will help others see. Um, so it's it, it's a beautiful poem. It's one of the most, it's one of the most hardest in the language. It's a wonderful um, poem dealing with a, a, a personal <coughs> anguish struggle at a time when England itself was going through this struggle and um, praying for her conversion to return, particularly with the king, the, the royalty, to go back. It's a beautiful poem. Beautiful poem. So now we've done it. Now we've done one of the hardest poems you'll... <laughs> Huh? Thanks for reading. Oh, well, thanks for hearing it. Oh, hard is understatement. You're right, though. I mean, it's different when you hear it read as yeah. opposed to reading it yourself. And you have, and it really yeah. does make a difference. Yeah. Glad you see it. You of course, it, it also helps because there's all of those words I don't know how to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> Should be clear from my reading, I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> Don't let that stop you. I stumbled it over all that you can hear. It. Okay, let's do. Here we go. Um, 
I don't, I don't, did I, I don't think I thanked everybody. Did I thank everybody for the work we've yes. done together? Mm-hmm. Yes, you did. The beginning of class? Your prayer. Yes, I did. A couple of times. Pray for me, please. Please. Good, good. Keep it up, Linda, please. Keep it up. Oh, God. Okay. I want to go back. We've got to pick up Midsummer Night's Dream. What I'd like to do with Midsummer Night's Dream is read some of the passages by Theseus and Hippolyta just to clarify differences between them and, and as a way of illustrating a point. But before we get there, I want to just make a quick review. Very quick. For this reason, um, we, you've seen in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, Chaucer... Um, Chaucer is dealing with the United England. England's united. The, the Reformation hasn't taken place. This is so important, absolutely crucial. England's united. Everybody is present in the Canterbury Tales. The, the whole nation is represented. The only, the only aspect of English society that's not represented is royalty. We don't have a king or any of the lords. And that's interesting to me, but other than with the exception of that, everybody's there. All of society, landowners, um, monks, priests, prioresses, um, a knight, squire, landowners, a miller, um, a wife of Bath, all of societies there, they're all united by one thing. They're all going to Thomas Beckett's shrine. So in this, this is an epic journey. This is an epic. Remember, an epic is always dealing with a founding. It's always taking a past and founding, showing a, a people coming to a new order of itself. So it's almost as if the whole Middle Ages and its struggles is coming to a point of unity in this journey that all these people are taking together. Okay? So in, in Canterbury Tales, Chaucer is showing us a united England. They're all united in the same faith. Okay? Um, Shakespeare's not. When we do when we read Midsummer Night's Dream, we're reading a work by a poet who's already experienced the Reformation, who knows he's under a totalitarian regime. The Tudors have taken over. The, um, I think I mentioned this last time, when Shakespeare began his writing, he, he wrote um, histories in his attempt to understand how the Tudors got to the power that they did. And in his first tetralogy, Henry VI, one, two, and three, and Richard III, who is the, the most despicable king in all of Shakespeare's works, the most despicable, the most evil. And I'm saying that aware, he, he doesn't come close to Iago. I made this point when we did it. I, I'm sure it would have been lost on you guys because we haven't done the histories, but the interesting point to, to think about there is Richard was a king. He had power over everybody. He was the, the most evil person except Iago. Iago is worse and he is the product of a modern democracy. Us. He comes out of the commercial republic. It's interesting, it's interesting to see that because what Shakespeare's showing us is that the power that Richard had is almost nothing compared to the evil, the power for evil, the power for evil that Iago can do. Iago's, Iago's a, a product of our regime, and his sole purpose is to destroy. Capitalism, capitalism means capital, the head. 
Capitalism comes from capital to head because the nature of the regime is for us to be resourceful, try to make our own way in the world instead of be living in a feudal world. Yeah? To be resourceful. What, when resourcefulness goes bad, what does it become? Great. Cunning. To kill, not to bring life, to use the intellect and angel a demonic power to kill. So in Iago, we've got an image of ourselves in Merchant of Venice, something in ourselves. And, um, but in Richard III, you're looking at a king of England who is just a bad king. Shakespeare wrote that first tetralogy as his way of exploring how the Tudors came into power. As he matured as his man, he realized that the, that the source of that power was not the War of the Roses, the two classes killing each other off. It was the usurpation of Richard II. So the second tetralogy is Richard II, Henry the fourth, part one and two, and Henry V. If you've seen Braniff's movie, Henry V, you know what an extraordinary king Henry V was. He was the, the image of a perfect Christian king. What Shakespeare does with him is extraordinary. But Shakespeare makes clear what happened was Richard saw himself as God's anointed. Where did that come from? The Jews. We want a king like other kings. <clears throat> Who did they get? Saul. From that moment forward, kings had a divinely anointed character, a charism. Richard thought he was protected under that, so he could do abuses. Bolingbroke usurps, takes his throne, and this is the point, introduces a principle of Machiavellian politics. Shakespeare is absolutely clear in this. Machiavelli's already written, and he's read Machiavelli. You can't miss him in Shakespeare. He's what happens in that moment is we pass from a divine right notion of kingship to one of Machiavellian politics. The person who's going to be in control is going to have to deal with all these things in a way to hold on to his power. We're into the modern world. Because there's nothing going on in the modern world on the modern state, state that isn't Machiavellian. How many people are willing, how many politicians are willing to give up their lives to save soldiers in Benghazi? You know, or get out of the battlefield. So we're in the modern world. So when Shakespeare writes, the unity of England's gone. It's a divided England. It's divided politically. There are different political parties. There are religious factions and dissatisfactions among them. Betrayals, intrigues mark England. Is any of that present in, in uh, Chaucer? No. When you read Chaucer, <laughs> I mean, one of the reasons I, seem, I think we enjoy him is he, he shows how mean and vicious people can be and he laughs at them. When the, monk, when the monk tells his tale, he tells it of the priest, and he has nothing good to say about priests, because most priests are bad. When the priest tells his story about the monk, he has nothing good to say about the monks. So people are using their stories to get at each other. There's a, there's this, but we laugh at it because it's silly and funny. Shakespeare's time? It's vicious and mean, and it's taking lives. People are going to the tower for their beliefs, they're being executed. If you speak the truth on something, you're dead. So Shakespeare's dealing with a different world, okay? Now hold that in mind because of what we're going to do in the review. Okay? So there's a different context. We are leaving a medieval England for a modern England, and we're entering the modern world, okay? So um, remember, the, the, the central intuition of constellation of philosophy is 
Fortune is all around us. We live in a contingent world. If we learn to be, the, the ultimate end of man is happiness. He was meant to be happy. That's our ultimate end. We can't attain that end if we don't know our beginnings and our ends. This is Lady Philosophy's argument. We're surrounded by chances. We live in a world of contingency. Often things happen. If we, if we depend for our happiness on pleasure, wealth, reputation, power, if we depend, if we make our happiness depend on any of those things, we're going to be miserable. Because in a contingent world, we can't control them. Because, for, uh, let me just take a, a, a wild example. Say you're a millionaire, you've got a million dollars. Most people who don't have a million dollars think that man's going to be happy. Is he going to be happy? Absolutely not, because what's going to go on? He's going to be afraid to lose it. Think about what that man has to do to protect his investments. He's going to live anxiously all his days. Christ says that much. Barn storehouses and you know, building up your fortune, back up your fortune with more backup fortune. When you get into that world, there's no getting out. You're just you're falling into a hole with other holes following it. So Lady Philosophy makes clear if we if we make our happiness rest on success in our world, education, the power to make money, we're we're cutting, we're undercutting our spiritual life. She says, it's not until we put our desires on the ultimate good, the source of all things that's imperishable, that we'll ultimately be at peace. And it's then that she uses that image of the circle with a still point, and she makes this distinction between providence and faith. So long as we're on the circumference, where things are in motion, we're constantly bound by what seems inevitable to happen. This chaos, this confusion, the losses, the, the dangers, the contingencies that keep coming up. The closer you are to the center, the closer you are to providence, because there you're at rest. So the closer any of us is to that center, the more at peace we are. That is, the more our mind, just, it was the gospel reading this morning. The more our mind is on God, the less on the treasures of this earth, the, the more we enter into his peace. The last question they tackle is, um, if, if God um, sees everything, and he foreknows things, how can things not be predetermined? How can they not be necessitated? And um, she gives that wonderful example. I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I don't, I don't want to go back to it right now. But. So um, Bev's there. Is it necessary that she's sitting because she's sitting there? Yes, it is. She's sitting. The, does the fact that I see her sitting necessitate that she sits? No. So there's a difference between two conditions there. My seeing her sitting doesn't necessitate her sitting, but the fact that she's sitting necessitates that she's sitting. She is. If she gets up, is it necessary that she gets up? Yes, it is. But does my seeing it necessitate it? No. So the fact that God sees things doesn't mean he predetermines them, this notion of predestination. It's not a small matter for me as a teacher, and I'm hoping it's not for you guys, because we so often hear people, particularly in the Protestant world, God will do it. That was God's doing. Okay? I want to come back to that, because that's a grave, grave danger for our church. Our church recognizes that. The religious imagination can get carried away. Does the fact that God sees something necessitate it? No, it doesn't. Any more than my seeing Bev sitting necessitate. But here's the thing I really want to focus on. Doc and I were talking about this the other day, and she said, but it's not God sitting. It's not God watching Bev. I mean, it's not 
It's not Robert watching Bev, it's God. Imagine what God sees. I see Bev with what little I know about her. I know that she's an extraordinary cook. <laughs> and I know that she was brave in this ordeal, and I believe that. And I know there's a lot of spunk in her. Um, I know she carries a lot. Beyond that, I, um, God knows her. Do I know her the way God does? Absolutely not. So when God knows, when he's seen Bev, does the fact that he see her means he's predestiny or necessitating? No. He can look at her, but he, will he look at her with the same eye? Now remember, he's infinite in his knowledge. So is there any way in which he can look at Bev and not see a hundred other things going on in her life that he's got to work with in order to help her? Does that mean he predestines them? No, but it means he's got a lot of work with him. I mean, you know, but he's infinite in his knowledge. So we talk about God's knowing, does it predetermine or necessitate something, or are things predestined? Do we lose our free will because God seems to see in the future? No, it does not. Um, one of the most important things that we take away from Boethius is man has a free will. It's the one way in which he's made like God. The fact that God sees things does not necessitate him, does not take away our free will. What does that mean? I mean, that opens on a mystery, right? Um, he, whatever he does, you know that he's going to protect those things that are most important in us. That he put in us our powers of knowledge, our free will. So what Boethius is making clear is that God allows things, and one of the fundamental conclusions to that work is no fortune ever takes place that is not good even when it harbages evil. Because we know God's a God of goodness. He's not an evil God. So no matter what stupid things we do, no matter what we do that causes evil, God's always working to bring some good out of it. The crucifixions are example. There's, there will never be a war to equal that act. Not the death of 20 million men will ever equal what took place in that act. We killed God. <clears throat> So there's nothing that he does that isn't taking what we do, doing something with it, even if we can't see it, to bring something good out of it. That's our faith. Or I don't believe we're straight on our faith, or straight on God. So Boethius is helping to answer Boethius's predicament. Remember, I've been unjustly treated, I'm here, I don't belong here. There's, how can God do this? So everything that follows is Boethius' attempt to make sense of that act. It's the Job story, except it's been baptized. And, and um, philosophized by pagans. Boethius is taking the best of Aristotle and Plato, the best wisdom of the pagans, just like Dante did. He's taking the best wisdom and bringing it into a Christian world with a personal God. So. Um, no matter what happens, no matter about, no matter how bad they seem, we're, our faith is that there is some good going on. Do we see it always? One of the purposes of this course has always been to ask, where is Christ? Do we see him or ordinarily? We don't think of him as being there. You know, the whole work has been to make us aware that he's everywhere. He's always here, even if we don't see him. 
So that was Boethius. Chaucer loved Boethius. He's everywhere present in the Knight's Tale. You've seen it from our work there. Um, in, the, in the Knight's Tale, Chaucer's going back to the Theseus story. He's going back to a founding. Chaucer, Theseus is the founder of Western civilization. He's the founder. What he does is baptize Theseus. He takes Theseus and um, rewrites it, carries it forward, takes the past, draws on it, carries it forward to give it a new Christian meaning. It begins with Theseus having conquered the, the Amazons, and then once he meets the women, he goes on to conquer the Thebes because it's the cruel city. So even in that, even though nothing's made of those two events, virtually, I mean the real stories about Arcita and Palamon and Emily, we, we learn a couple of things. One is um, that Theseus represents something democratic, ca Catholic, absolutely Catholic, absolutely Catholic. He conquers the Amazon, uh, Amazon and he marries Hippolyta. It shows the, 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 the rule of the masculine over the feminine, reason over the emotions. And the, 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 the principle of rule of the man over the woman is not dominance, it's serving. There's nothing Theseus does that isn't to serve. Um, when he conquers the um, Amazons, he's conquering a group of women who make their ties to each other more important than men or others. It's an, it's an anti-humanist, it's an anti-democratic spirit. Um, all people, we're all God's creatures, we're supposed to come together. The means of creation is um, what happens in marriage between a man and a woman. The Amazons, by nature, rule that out. He conquers them. The Thebes represent a dynastic world, a tribal. It's the ancient royal lineage, the, the, the aristocratic. He conquers them. And what, he, what we see, I mean, it's interesting that they're the ones that make up the story because it's Palamon and Theseus and Emily who are all products of Thebes. Thebes is an image of the, the dynastic loyalty, the, those who are high-bred. Theseus is a democratic principle. He takes them to Athens. And what we watch unfold are the dangers in that dynastic, aristocratic pride. These men loved each other. They're brothers. As soon as they see a woman, they're ready to kill each other. Those stories about those passions, yeah? So, and we know that, I don't want to go through it, but we know that the result of it is, this is the Christian aspect, none of those nobles, none of the lovers, will ever come to the love that they want until they die to themselves. Arcite has to give up his love. Palamon has to give up his love. Emily has to stop wanting to have it her way and not marry. Every one of them has to learn to give up their will before they can learn to love. It's absolutely Christian. So Boethius is taking that Christian, the pagan story of a founding and refounded it. He's showing us a principle for our modern world. And it's absolutely Catholic, absolutely democratic. Theseus is an image of a democratic ruler. He's serving, he's serving to help other people become better. Now, last week, um, I just did a quick review of Plato's cave, remember, because now we're going to Shakespeare. Remember, according to Plato,
Plato said there were three faculties to the soul. There's really two. There's reason and eros. Desire. There's reason and desire. And, and Shakespeare makes everything of that because you know that everything that happens in, in uh, Midsummer Night's Dream is based on desires. The desires that are awakened by beauty. Um, and he gave the image of the charioteer, the man in the charioteer, driving, controlling the two horses. The charioteer's reason, the black horse are the appetites, and the white horse is thumos. And remember for Plato, I gave you the example. I know this is all review. I hope, I hope this isn't boring, but I gave the example of a man who's thirsting and um, on the verge of dying. He's on a desert, and he approaches um, a pond of water, and he knows that when he drinks, he'll live. He wants to not die. He wants to live. He gets close to the pond, he comes down, and he starts to drink of the water, and he sees a sign that says poison. What does he do? The, the reason Plato used an example like that is because it makes clear there are two kinds of desire, the, the desire of the body to drink and one that goes against it. So there's a rational faculty that can make a distinction. So human beings, if you look at anything we do in life, those three faculties become evident. We've got a rational faculty, we desire things, okay? Plato said that the desires take two forms. The, the thumos, or anger, or spiritedness, is a virtue. It's not a vice. Wrath is a, is a, is a, is a vice. Well, wrath is a sin. Anger is not a sin. Everything in our honor world wants to take anger about. Who, what CEO wants an underling angry, or getting angry at him? It'd be a bad example for us, you know, People in business, that's the one thing they don't want. What was, what was the major work that founded Western civilization outside of prophecy? The Iliad. First book, what's it about? Achilles' anger. It's fundamental to our... Plato said that anger, thumos, spiritedness, is the love of noble things. Beauty, goodness, truth, unity, oh, it's all the transcendentals. There's a love in us for something greater than our physical being. There's also a love in us directed towards physical things. We want a nice car, we want to have sex, we want to eat, we want to drink. We saw this in Dante, so... So the soul has three faculties. The rational faculty and this appetitive, but the appetitive takes two forms, a longing, a desire for immaterial realities, a longing for, for material realities, both. And you can see the conflict. He said, the charioteer controls the dark horse by means of this white one. C.S. Lewis makes the same argument in Abolition of Man. That's the reason I wrote this letter to you all. Um, reason, and I gave the example, if you take a young couple um, and and they're by themselves in the living room watching a romantic movie and their parents are gone. Both of them know they're not supposed to have sex. They're not supposed to have. They know it in their heads. Parents are gone. Is, is, is their power of reason going to be great enough to overcome the sexual temptation, particularly if there's an arousing scene coming up? Are they going to be able to stop? You know that the Dante's Divine Comedy begins with that act. Francisco and Paola, they were reading about Lancelot and Guinevere. And Dante's line was from Francisca. How'd she put it? 
And there was no more reading that night. <laughs> Is a young couple going to be able to stop? Because reason by itself cannot control the appetites. They're too powerful. So Lewis is making this argument, and Plato indirectly is, reason controls these by means of this. So what's the most important thing? To develop a good heart, good feelings. To learn to love what we should love, to hate what we should hate. Because if those loves are well developed, when reason comes, reason will be good. Develop reason without, re without feeding that. You know, I keep hearing um, Christ and John Paul, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. For John Paul, feed my sheep, help them to develop good hearts, to love the way they should. Is Christ talking about food? Feed my sheep. He, he wants them fed on him, on him who is love itself. One of the greatest tasks for educators today should be, should be forming good sentiments. Is that what's going on in education today? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So here's, here's the, and Boethius, Boethius knew this backwards and so did Chaucer. In Shakespeare, we've got a play in which we see Theseus ruling again. It opens with him saying, I wooed you with a sword. Now, I mean, he and Apollo are together. We've also got um, a play in which the three classes of the city, as Plato knew them, we've got the three classes of the city coming together. That's a concern Chaucer did not have. Why? Because England was united. It was not a big problem. Can Shakespeare say that? Here's, here's Plato's great challenge. Plato said, Unless we have a poet who can see what's universal, remember here's the cave, and only one, this is sorry, only man, one man begins to question, and then he comes out, and he sees what's universal, what's unchanging, because everything in the cave is, is in, in, a, in a state of flux. It's appearances, things changing, it's in flux, it's the world. We're caught in that circle, you know, things changing, flux, shifting, chaos, confusion. It's only the poet who can, it's only the poet who has seen the universals, who's come out of the cave, who can go back and show what's eternal and unchanging that we will allow into our city, the Republic. That was Plato's critique. Shakespeare knew it the way Chaucer did it. Except the difference is in Shakespeare's time, he's not dealing with just um, the rulers and the nobles, Theseus, Arceta, Palamon, Emily, Hippolyta, right? He's dealing with the rulers, Theseus and Hippolyta, the nobles, the lovers, the, those given to noble passions. I hope this is clear. Would the mechanics kill each other over beauty? The craftsmen, bottom, quince. No. Are, do they have that quality of thumus? No. Does everybody have a quality of thumus? Thumus means spirited. You're ready to fight when somebody takes something away from you they shouldn't. You have the sense of nobility, of justice or beauty. or That's a good quality. But <laughs> it's dangerous too. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So in Shakespeare's world, he's not only dealing with the ruler and the lovers, which is what Chaucer did, 
Are you all following? Mm -hmm. yeah. he's, he's, not only he's also dealing with the nature of the city itself because he knows now that unless we live in a, a well-structured polity, a violence will be done to the soul. Let me go at that another way. Here was Plato's argument in the Republic. It's important to know the nature of the soul because if you live in a regime, and he had on his mind mostly Eastern regimes, tyrannies, despotisms, Babylon, you name it, China. Um, um, any rule where there are ruling dynasty, ruling classes. Um, if you live in a world in, in which the, the political system is out of tune with the nature of the soul, what will happen to the nature of the soul? Will it reach its fulfillment? No. So the, the relationship between the person and the, the city has been a principal one forever. It was there for Plato and Aristotle, it's fundamental to them. It's there for Boethius, all about it. He's being treated unjustly, he's going to be executed. It's there for Chaucer, it's there for Shakespeare. So Shakespeare's concern is um, not only how to bring the lovers together, the nobles, um, Lysander, Hermia, Helena, Demetrius, is how to bring the three classes of the city together. Does he do it? Yes, he does. This play ends with the lovers in harmony and all three classes in harmony together. In unity, they're all together. How does he do that? That was my question last week. Remember the problem was this. The initial problem as the play presents it is that love and law are antagonistic. They're in conflict. Aegeus brings his daughter Hermia to Theseus saying, she's disobeying me. She should be obeying her father, it's her father. He wants, Aegeus wants um, Theseus' sanction as the political ruler. He says, she's not obeying me. Theseus says to Hermia, obey your father or die or go to a nunnery. So the opening conflict is law and love do not get along. Bottom's words, bottom's words. Reason and love do not go together these days. Let me ask, do reason and love go together in our days? When you listen to the reason that most political minded people speak to, do you get any wint or hint of love, hint of love in, or virtue in the way they use reason? An issue problem, there's this conflict. The lovers go into the forest um, because of what Overrun does, they're all righted. They're on the edge of the forest when Theseus comes at the end of the play and Aegeus says, I, 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 how does he put it? I want the law. Like Shylock, and it's, I want the law. Theseus overbears and says, I overbear your will. Because he knows to screw that up would absolutely make chaos in the city. If he made Demetrius marry Hermia and Lysander marry Helena, when they've already straightened out their loves, there'd be nothing but conflicts in the city. So what happens resolves law and love and makes it possible for the lovers to go back into the city and love and law to be together. Set off against that is what happens with Pyramus and Thisbe. This is where we ended up last week. The mechanics are putting in play the lovers, the mismatched love of Pyramus and Thisbe. They are lovers in the East. Ninus, Ninius, is the founder of Nineveh. His wife, um, Syriamus, um, was the um, legendary founder of Babylon. Do the lovers get back to the city in Babylon? 
No, they don't. They die. Because in the East, love and law aren't reconciled. They never have been, never will be, unless they Christianize. Because in Christianity, two things, three things happen. Poetry and philosophy come together with religion. Christ says, I didn't come to do away with the law, I came to fulfill it. Love and law are reconciled in him. The whole philosophic tradition, having to do with wisdom, is compatible with Christ. If you read Aristotle and Plato, you learn to see that lots of amazing ways they, um, they prepare for him. There's no f- support for religion from philosophy in the East. When the, when the um, medieval Islamic philosophers studied Aristotle and Plato, they were absolutely taken by it. They could not renounce their religion, Islam, even though philosophy and religion were incompatible. What they did was come up with what they call a second truth, as if there could be two truths, because they couldn't square what they were learning, the truth of things, with their religious beliefs. So to come up with two truths was actually a threat to Islam. Islam outlawed them. Philosophy and religion have never come together in the East. So in the East, law and love remain irreconcilable. The other thing is that in the West, we have this rich poetic tradition that has this element of philosophy. That these poets, Chaucer, Shakespeare, Melville, I mean, go, they, we've inherited this philosophic sense of things that we know is compatible with our religious beliefs. So the two support each other. In the modern world, that breaks. All the rational systems, Hegel, Marx, Heidegger, you know, all, they all break. Then you're in a world of ideologies, of system. But up until the modern world, philosophy was compatible. So what's going on in Shakespeare is that there's this possible harmony among lovers. It's possible for love and law to come together. Um, in a way that's not true in the East. Now, my question last time was, why? It's only possible because of what happens with Oberon in the forest. It's what he does with that love potion that makes it possible for those lovers to go on. And here's what's crucial. What he does has to receive sanction by Theseus. Because Theseus is the one who says, I do overbear your will, the lovers come back. So it needs a political sanction somebody wise enough to do what Theseus did. But the question that I left everybody with, and I'd like to take a few minutes with it now, is who's Oberon? What is he doing? He's in a world of shadows. He works with images, shadows. He works with the eyes, with desire. And he's working with his love potion. It's only because of what he does in the shadowy, and it's a moonlight, it's a world of shade. It's moonlight, everything takes place. It's not, it's not under the clear light of law. You know, laws are clear. It's in this world of moonlight and dreams. Everything that happens in the forest happens during dreams. Somebody's dreaming something. They enter a world of dreams. So, if this is important at all, and I'm trusting that you see it is, that what Chaucer did was really important because he, he like Dante, he carried the past forward so that the the present could be strengthened by what it was learning, but he also renewed it. He's taking a pagan myth, but renewing it. 
So the past is kept alive, a wisdom is being carried on and transformed to fit the present. That's what Chaucer did. Shakespeare's doing the same thing, but he's doing it in a, in a much more complicated context. The world has changed. The, the Reformation has taken place. There are violent divisions between faith. There are violent divisions between political factions. People are being executed. They're being imprisoned. Catholics are being disenfranchised. The Puritans have been sent away. They're, they're on their way to America. The Puritans, people had to practice the, the Anglican faith basically under Henry. Elizabeth tried to make a compromise, but she lied everywhere and made compromises. That, I mean, when you look at hi what the effects were in history, they're just ridiculous. They're still alive in the Oxford movement in the 19th century. It's what led to it. So he's living with this tremendous complexity. So what he's showing at the end is, is some possibility for man. We can write it off and say, oh, it's all in the imagination. Nice in a play. It doesn't happen in reality. Or we can say there's something there. Whatever we say, we still have to, if, if we keep our focus on the play, it's none of this good happens without Obron. Who is he? What is Shakespeare doing with him in the left version? So are we seeing Thymos at work? Explain that, I don't know. Well, if, 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 is it Themos or Thymos? Either what Themos is, but either. If, if, if it's spiritness, you know, that, that, that something in us that is, you know, the white, the white horse offsetting the appetites. That is <clears throat> kind of a shadowy world, you know, that whatever it is that's inside of us that, that judges something being better than something else, or that, it, that it, it needs to be offset or modified or whatever the case may be. Help correct it. Yeah. So, Maybe what we're seeing in the forest is that that activity going on that is ultimately going to re resort in the finding of the mean, the balance between reason and the eros, which mm -hmm. is what you call those two things combined. I call them both because it's just desire. It's just but but that's what. It, so yeah. So themos and appetites collectively are the eros. Desires, yeah. Right. Yeah. So what we ultimately in order to to find that, that mean, there has to be that shadowy activity that helps us find the balance between the white horse and the black horse. Okay, so we, it, so we're going in the right direction. Put it, put it this, go ahead, Don. I was gonna say, it's over on Providence, you know, something that's outside the, the world that we see that's working in the background and the shadows to bring together the good. Yeah, yeah, Providence is good. I'm a little bit, Themos, I, I thought with your description that it's a shadow, I mean, this love of desire and beauty and the way we get confused by the way we stand in this world and aware of another, I mean, that, we've been talking about that forever, if you take the Eucharist, you know. But, but that's kind wait, of where wait, here, providence here. works, right? Wait, wait, no, just because I want to, um, the way you presented it made it seem as if Themos were directing things. If Themos doesn't have reason, Above it, if we're going to, I don't like the, but if, if Themis doesn't have a higher power to guide it, is Themis by itself sufficient? I mean, that's actually why I wrote the letter to Mary. Um, no, it's not. It isn't. Your reason is basically dealing with both and looking for the mean. In trying to, 
in trying to realize a virtue, a mean, a, it's not a balance, it's a, a mean. It's a, and it's different for everybody because we're all different, but it, virtue, is, virtue is a habit, it's a power of being good. And it takes work to become virtuous. Gita, did you have, what do you think? Well, who is Oberon? He's the guy, right, who helped um, get everyone together. The, I don't think we're going to get, I think it's really important that we keep clear. Shakespeare does it with, he'll do it with Merchant of Venice. He'll have, generally for Shakespeare it's the city and the forest, or the city and another, there'll be two things because by doing that he helps us become aware of differences, the conflicts and struggles. What goes on in the city is clear, it's law. What goes on in the forest is in a shadow world, it's in dreams and moonlight and so what, whoever Oberon is, we have to see him in that context. Nothing, nothing, nothing can get back to the city. There's no way law and love are going to be reconciled without Oberon. Theseus can't do it. Theseus has got to support the father. Take away the father's authority and the family will go to hell. And, and back it up, we're in the same world we were in in Merchant of Venice. If she doesn't obey the law, she's, she's going to die. So it's a cruel, it's a cruel, we see the cruelty of the law by itself, right? She either does that or she's going to die or go to a nunnery. It's going to be death to her. So who is Oberon? The East doesn't have him. I hope that's clear. The lovers don't get back there. They're left at the wall. Each of them commits suicide. Debbie, did you have something? I hate to look um, absolutely stupid, but when come you on, this, we're all here. When you asked this question last week, I thought it's Christ, it's God, because providence—the word providence—is the care. I mean, if you look at the definition, it's the care um, of of God. Um, and so it was like, okay, you're you're uniting love and law. Who did that? Okay, let me, did that. I'm going to be a textual critic now. Give me a, because, give me a, wait, because one of the things that I've experienced as a teacher, kid, kids have the, for the, ever have had this notion, literature means whatever you want it to mean. So one guy can say this and one guy can, and they, so literature is in the eyes of the beholder. Whatever you want to make it, it's true for you, it's true. So there's this spirit of relativism that they bring to the class, which I try to get out. So give me evidence in this text that this is God. Mm. Wait, hold on, let me give you evidence that he's not. He's in a forest, <laughs> he's in a forest, he's dealing with human creatures immediately, he has a shape, I mean, he's, you know, um, there's, there's more to suggest that he belongs to a natural order than he does, that there is evidence that he's a supernatural and we have to, mm -hmm. God is infinite and, he certainly has a providential aspect to him, he's, he's doing what you're, both you and Don are saying, he's, um, he's working with people. He's like Boethius. I mean, he, had, he carries some sense of providence in the way that he tries to <coughs> take care of everything. And Puck, Puck is an image of something. You know that Puck can be around the world in a second. He's here and there. Mm -hmm. And he screws up accidentally and, and Oberon gets on him and then goes into... So he has to correct things too. And he uses his drops differently according to the people. Right. They have different needs. 
Well, I'm going to limit it to the Holy Spirit, which is sent to us from okay, I'll buy that. I'll buy that. Who has <laughs> each person as they need and um, doesn't override your sense of will, you know, uh, but guides you. And I keep the word conscious, uh, conscience keeps coming up. Conscience? Yeah. 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 You know, that it hides your conscience to, to, uh, to the reality. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, he certainly has a reason that he knows that this plant will do certain things and he has antidotes and all that. So he has. He knows how to use love, too. Right. Well, yeah. Yes. <coughs> and then who needs it? He has knowledge of who needs it. Sorry, you said. He has knowledge of who needs it. Oh, right. And who needs what? Yeah. Well, and the thing is that that um, he he takes what is there and brings brings some clarity to the people who are there. He doesn't force them. Does to he do bring anything. clarity? Well, he doesn't Does force work? them to do anything. Well, hold on, just a second. Give me any evidence in the text. <laughs> when the lovers come to the edge of the forest in the morning, they all wake up and they're all in love. It, 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 would we use the word clarity to describe their condition? I don't have I any doubt it, that... Maybe an awakening to what their real emotions are. Maybe not clarity, maybe an awakening. Yeah. Well, why do they all, like, supposed to be like, think that everything that happened was a dream? Explain, so that, explain that, Bev. I mean, go ahead. Where you? Well, the, you know, the lovers, the... The wrong drops of the eyes, mm -hmm. the lovers mismatch, right. and then getting back together again. In their minds, didn't they perceive that as, I mean, did they know that really happened? The, or the, the or or was it a dream, right. dream, right. Yeah, I mean, it, isn't that a fairly accurate description of us a lot of times when we go back and we look at things so differently, <laughs> it's like a, through a maze and think, holy cow, I missed it then. And I don't know, I don't, I don't want to press this, but Certainly, one of the things I think we can say about the lovers is that they carry an awareness of how screwed up they were, that they went through these fights with each other, the men with the men, the women with the men, the pairs with different pairs. They were at it violently. What, what they come to at the end resolves that, so they know peace. And they're, I mean, if, I would assume, I may be wrong, but I would assume that the in that piece, they're aware of what they had to overcome, that these are a part of their experiences now, excuse me. Our time's running short. Let me just offer you this, because um, I want to make a general statement about the whole thing. Um, as I read Oberon, I, and I, I think it's interesting to, to hear what all of you, a number of you have put together. I would say all of what you're describing are in Oberon, but I, my, I myself see him as a poet figure. That the poet is the one who works with the imagination. He's the one who works with shadows. But if he's going to be a good poet, he has to have reason, spirit. And if, if he's a genuinely deep poet, God will be at work in him and possibly the Holy Spirit, that he's moving by transcendent reality. That he's know that love is at the issue. He's, but I, I, I'm saying this really earnestly as a, as a teacher who takes this seriously. I don't think any of us can make a case, this is Christ or this is God. The text doesn't allow it. 
a secular critic could look at this and say, this is a piece of evidence showing Shakespeare was secular. Because there's nothing in the text making it explicit. There are the allusions to the Cupid. It's Cupid shooting an arrow of love and hitting this white flower, and it, and it turns purple. It's wound. It's the color of a wound. It all suggests Christ, a transcendent. But you, you cannot make the case that he, he's working so within a modern world. My argument would be it all assumes Christ because it all assumes a goodness that reconciles law and love. So like Eliot, even if he doesn't name it, I mean, I, I can come to that conclusion. But when I look in the play, there's nothing in the play. A, a secular critic come away saying, this is evidence that Shakespeare was agnostic or secular, or, you know, a non-believer. I think to, to, to make that argument, you, you have to use the play as a whole and infer things, the goodness, <coughs> the harmony, the love, the unity between love and law that doesn't occur in the East. The, 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 the way in which, I'm going to say, the way in which the poet works with law. I'm, I'm looking at Oberon as a poet figure. He works with the imagination. He works in a world of force, of appearances. But what he does with them absolutely answers everything about Plato's critique. He's got to bring these things together. Um, is there a power of Thumus in him? I'd say absolutely, but it is so controlled. D does he cut up Titania in their quarrels? No, he doesn't. Is he angry with her? Yes. Is she angry with him? Yes. But everything he does is to try to bring good out of So we're watching a, a figure work in a shadowy world of the imagination to bring, to help form emotions to make them lawful. <coughs> And it seems Shakespeare working in that tradition is new. By the way, this is one of the things that Lincoln said. Lincoln, who I think was a poet, he said, you just can't change laws arbitrarily. This is Lincoln, a politician, I think the greatest president we've ever had. He said, the only way you can make good laws is by preparing hearts that would be disposed to make them. He knew that in order to make good laws, you had to change people's hearts to make them good. Who does that? The poet, the musician. They're the ones who order our emotions. They help raise emotions to feel in accord with a better reason. That's what Oberon's doing. And what he's doing is preparing those lovers to go back into a regime under law. Lincoln, the way you make good laws is by ordering emotions. Make the, make the emotions. Can you or get, look at the laws more. In fact, here's my last question. I'm going to stop. If Plato's right, if we live in a regime that's out of a tune with the nature of the soul, will that regime help the soul realize its potential? No. Very often, it becomes destructive of the human person. Is the regime that we watch at the end here that we experience in tune with the soul? I'd say yes. Imagine us living under a tribal world. Imagine us living under socialism. Will either of those polities, political organizations, if we have a nature as Plato describes it, if we lived in either of those conditions, would we become okay? Take tribal. Why not under tribe? Why not under socialism? No mercy. Hmm? No mercy. 
No mercy? No love. Where, where, both are which? What? Social. Tribal, for example. Because, because, in, because in, in, in a tribal environment, it's really the law that ultimately dictates the end. And I would say the love of the bloodline that's associated with the bloodline, because what defines a tribe, Greek, Amazons, there's something narrowly racial or bloodline. It's through the bloodline that, that, that becomes so exclusive that it, it, it excludes. Tribes generally go to war with each other based on tribal attachments. Because the bloodlines define, you look down on people who, who aren't the same. Black race, Greek race, you know. I mean, the, the racial problem in America is serious. And the problem is prejudice. People see one race as worse than another. What about socialism? What's wrong with socialism? God is being pushed everywhere. It just stuns me. What's wrong with socialism? Why is that out of accord with the human soul? Is everybody equal? Or are there different classes? Do all people want, do all people, is the answer to a problem is becoming the same? Oh God. No. What will that do? Some people are gifted to be celloist, extraordinary celloist. Some people, do, do all mechanics want to be great? To be great basketball players or love beauty or have a painting? No. But what, what motivates the, the mechanics in, in Midsummer Spring? Money. Money. When bottom comes at the end, Quince or one of them says, thank God, he doesn't know it, he would have lost seven pence or 16 pence or, they're there for the money. Do they care about, are they going to get angry at each other because they're not beautiful or their passions? No. Is everybody the same? No. No. There's some kids who, who, who just want to be a car mechanic. I, we have a car mechanic we go to because I trust that, I trust that man more than I trust 90% of the intellectuals I know. He loves what he's doing. The person, they, the person who's been with him, 18 years. They are so good, and I say to them every time, I can't tell you how much I admire you because it's a, it's a lost art. For people to love a craft in America, it's humiliating. Not everybody wants to do that. Not everybody wants to be noble. And how many people who are noble are capable of being good leaders? Is everybody the same? Will socialism take away our disorders? No. That's the apostles. They tried it. <laughs> right. Right. They did. I know. Last word here. Let me let me let me take two minutes. Sorry. Give me two minutes. Okay. Give me two minutes. Wrap up. Look, any questions about all of this? You see how important that's one of the reasons we're gonna do some Shakespeare next year when we come back, because I want I wanna pick some of this up because it's too valuable. And, but you're okay to just so, see. So you see the poet in Portia as well then? Oh yeah, for sure. For sure, absolutely. Yep. I, that's not going to mean much to any of you, but next, we'll do it, next year we'll do it, but absolutely, absolutely. Um, we've seen how important the poetic tradition is from Homer Virgil, Dante, Chaucer, all the way forward, Shakespeare, that the poets carry the past forward, transforming it while they go. They are exactly like God. The past is never put away. It's always alive in the present, as it would be with God. They're doing something extraordinary. 
And in the way that they do it, they, they help affirm in us an image of our human greatness in our bodies. One of the reasons I wrote that letter is because I think in religious people who take religion serious, there's a tendency in us to make our minds look down on our bodies. I, I did everything I could in that letter to dispel that. Christ took on a body. Eating was a major part of what he did. It's associated with his miracles. He, he, um, he, he what's the, established the Eucharist. Our bodies are what make us a glory. It's, they're not to be disdained. We use them badly, sexually, in drug, whatever. We, we use them badly. Does God not know that? Does Christ not know that when he offered his life? Of course he did. Um, should we be... Calvin's, one of the reasons I hate Calvinism. Calvin, despi Luther, despised the body. Why did Protestants look at sex as such a bad thing? What's the worst evil in the world? The worst evil in the world is spiritual pride. It's Lucifer's sin. Calvin looks, I mean, Protestants think of sex as so awful because they thought the body was depraved to, to engage in a sexual act. What did, why did John Paul write, write Theology of the Body? He, he didn't want sexual laxness. He knows that sex is probably the strongest drive we have in it. Remember in the mountain of purgatory, lust is the one closest to um, we can abuse the body. We abuse Lot. Um, one of the things that these poets do is carry this tradition forward in a way that affirms the great glory of the human person. And I say this with some intensity because I believe we live in an age which does everything to demean the human person and Christ. The greater part of the world has turned away from God it gets upset with Christ, Hollywood, the politicians, for the greater part. Um, do whatever sex, change your sex, have multiple partners. You know, we live in a world that so demeans it. Does that mean we're not supposed to enjoy sex? No, we're supposed to enjoy it greatly. We're supposed to enjoy our bodies, take a pride in them. But we have to take care. Every one of these poets affirms the glory of the human person. What separates us from beasts is our minds. What separates us from angels are our bodies, our hearts. These are things to be celebrated. Every one of the poets we've been reading shows some greatness to the human person. And I believe it's in Christ. Peter, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. He's saying, make hearts better. Poetry is one of the greatest ways we can do that. Thank you again. Um, you guys have a good summer. The assignment for this summer is read Chaucer. Okay. <laughs> test, test, wow. first day we come back. Oh, yeah.